Well, good morning, everybody. If you'll be turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, we're going to close out the first chapter of Luke. Luke, we've been going through Luke uh, for the Advent series, and we're going to begin in verse 57. As you're turning there, uh, I'd remind you that one of the things we've seen from Luke is that Luke cares about the stories of individuals in redemptive history, doesn't he? He tells us about uh, Mary, obviously. He tells us about Zechariah and Elizabeth, and, and he shows us in these stories that you know, the gospel meets us exactly where we are, that it has something to say for us, no matter what season of life we may be in, no matter where we may be, whether in Akros, Georgia, or the metro Atlanta area, or an out-of-the-way town in Palestine, God meets us where we are. And the passage we're going to consider today concerns the birth of John the Baptist. Um, and the birth of John the Baptist is significant, because remember that John's mission in life, um, we recall it from the, the announcement of his birth from the mouth of the angel Gabriel to Zechariah when he's serving in the temple, and we'll see it uh, repeated here from Zechariah's own mouth, is that John's mission is to serve as a forerunner of the coming Messiah, a forerunner of Jesus. And a forerunner um, is a messenger. He helps us to see what's coming so that when it does come, we don't miss it because we're distracted or we're not prepared for it. Um, and we might ask ourselves, why does Jesus need such a messenger? But, but think about it. We've, we've kind of seen the reason for it, even as we've gone through the story of, of John's announcement, the announcement of John's birth, and we, as we've gone through the first, couple, first halves of, of the first chapter of Luke, we've seen the necessity for it, haven't we? Um, you know, remember how Zechariah disbelieved the, the promise of, of God that he, his, his barren wife would bear a son when they were both very much in, in old age, you know? And, and here's someone who, who ought to have known better, you know, he's a priest before God Almighty. He knew his Old Testament. He would have been familiar with all of the glorious ways in which God worked with a, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He worked for the life of his people. He, he led them across the Red Sea. He, he provided uh, water out of the rock at Meribah. He set them up in a good and, and prosperous land, and he protected them, and he gave them all these glorious promises. And yet, right when the moment is, is right in front of Zechariah, right, right when God's power and, and his glorious promises are right there, he misses it, and, and he's sort of blind to the ability of God to work mightily in, in his life and in the life of his people. You know, Zechariah is not so different from, from you and me. We're, we are often blind to the work of God in our midst, not because it's, it's hard to see. It's not at all. It at all. It's, it's because in our sinfulness and our foolishness, we're blind because, you know, we disbelieve in the promises of God. We, we forget in his power, we, we, or we forget of his power. We, we forget that that he is working all the time to, to build his people up, to redeem his people, to reconcile the world to himself. Um, remember how we've often been saying that, that the antithesis to faith isn't doubt, uh, it's pride. You know, we, we, we've seen that again and again, haven't we? I mean, it's amazing how we've seen this truth repeated, you know, in, in, in sermons from, you know, Daniel and, and now going in through Luke. You know, and I think it's powerful because it exposes to us one of the main obstacles to believing the promises of God. You know, pride in our own efforts and in, in what it is possible for us to do, so we think, you know, without God's help, um, keeps us unable to see the gospel, keeps us unable to see our need for God, keeps us unable to see how God is working for us. And so we need stories like Zechariah's. We need prophets like John the Baptist, not only to show us that God is faithful to do all that he promises, but to wake us up, to shake us up out of our, out of our apathy and, and indifference to the things of God. And as we will see, God used uh, the sovereign rebuke in Zechariah's life of making him mute and deaf 
uh, to show him how much he needed God's help, uh, to show him the coming salvation that was coming through the Messiah. You know, consider how much time Luke spends in, in stories like this before getting to the actual you know, birth of Jesus, the, the main Christmas story, we might think. You know? and, and here we spent all these weeks going through different stories, and, and it might seem like, man, what's the point of all this? But, but think about how in all of these stories, God is leaving no room for pride, you know, no room for supposing that we have anywhere to go but, but to him for our comfort and peace and salvation. And, and this is really the upside-down nature of, of the kingdom, isn't it? You know, that, that God often works in ways that we're not expecting, not because, you know, he hasn't told us all that he's going to do if we have ears to hear, but he doesn't work according to our natural ways of reasoning or our natural expectations. He doesn't work according to the dictates of what we think is reasonable or possible. And we need these stories to shake us up to the reality of our good God. We need these stories to shake us up out of our indifference to, to God and all of his glorious promises, to, to wake us up to uh, who he calls us to be in him. And this is the nature of the upside-down nature of, of God's kingdom. So I'd ask you, in what ways has God been working in your life to make you more aware of his love and grace towards you? This is a, a good question to reflect upon all the time, but perhaps especially on, on days like today, on the Sabbath, and, and, and in particular in seasons like this, in which we can reflect more carefully over what the birth of Jesus means for us as, as God's people. What ways has God been using in your life to make you more aware of his, of his grace and love towards you? In fact, I, I think, stated another way, this is really the key truth of, of this passage that we're about to consider, and, that, and that's that God graciously works to show his people our need of him and the salvation that he alone provides. God graciously works to show his people our need of him and the salvation that he alone provides. And this is a great mercy because, like I said, we, we just are so prone to forget how good God is and so prone to overlook all of the ways in which he's worked mercifully in history to redeem us and to uh, bring us into a kingdom that is good and that is for our good and, and that we, in which we can serve God forever. So let's see it from the text. Uh, beginning with verse 57. Hear God's word. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So, we'll pause there for a minute. The time of John's birth has finally arrived, and Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, their neighbors, gather around to circumcise him on the eighth day and to see what he will be called. And they expect him to be named after his father. This was the usual custom, to name children after someone in the family line. Um, but, but to their astonishment, Elizabeth says that his name will be John. And, and even more astonishing, deaf and mute Zechariah confirms it. So think about this. For, for two aged and, and respected members of the community, as no doubt... Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were, to do something so out of tradition was unusual enough. But for, for John to confirm what Elizabeth had said, even though he's, he's mute and deaf and couldn't have heard her initial declaration, 
confirmed to their neighbors that this was more than just some eccentricity. This was more than just some, you know, two old folks who decided to buck the trends and do what they want to do. You know, this, this, something more is going on. Um, and Luke tells us that just as soon as Zechariah confirmed John's name, his ability to, to speak returned to him, and he began almost immediately to, to praise the Lord. Now, this is significant because it shows that Zechariah had taken to heart the discipline of the Lord by giving his name the son that the Lord had provided. Zechariah showed not only that he believed that God was able to do what he said he would do, but that he was going to confirm all the promises that he had made. That's just to say that Zechariah demonstrated his faith in God by obeying God. Now, we might think, isn't this a strange way to begin the Christmas story? Perhaps we think so because we take for granted the amazing grace demonstrated in the Incarnation. But consider how insensible we often are of our need, our very need for redemption. Consider how God is preparing us through the example of Zechariah and even through the life of John the Baptist to realize how good God is to sinners like us. You know, how needful we are of help to see how much we need God. So even before we get to the story of Jesus' birth, God prepares us to better understand what it's all about and the firm answer to sin that it, repre that it represents by showing us how needful we are of him through the examples of Zechariah and John the Baptist. That's why we need a forerunner like John. God is preparing us to see how wonderful the birth of Jesus is by muting the mouth of unbelief and opening the mouth of praise. And consider the effect this has on, on Zechariah's neighbors. They're struck with fear and confusion. They're not expecting God to do an amazing thing in their midst. They're expecting life to go on as normal. They're not expecting Emmanuel. They're expecting their culture to continue its course through the march of their lives. In, in the same way, we are often distracted by what's normal and, and what we know, and we need stories like Zechariah. We need a prophet like John the Baptist to assure us that God is with us, to assure us that God is for us, and that he is faithful and, and trustworthy, and most of all, to wake us up, to wake us up from our prideful self-sufficiency and indifference to the things of God. Now, John's name means God will be gracious. So even at his birth, John begins his role as a forerunner of the grace that God is going to reveal through Jesus Christ. God is gracious in giving this assembled people a, a window into what he is doing into their midst, or in their midst. And God is gracious in his rebuke of Zechariah's unbelief and in helping him through that experience to be able to understand that salvation is coming through the coming Messiah. So Luke sums up John's birth with the simple statement, for the hand of the Lord was with him. And that's the upshot of everything that's happened. The upshot of what has happened is that God is revealed as the one who's orchestrating these events to reveal his saving work to those who are ready to listen. So let's take comfort from this. You know, often we are thrown into trouble and difficult circumstances, and, and we struggle to know why. We may not be, be suffering for unbelief in the way that Zechariah does, but that doesn't change the fact that it's, it's still a trial. It's still hard to get through. It's hard to know why we're going through it sometimes. Nonetheless, we can take comfort from the fact that for Zechariah, the affliction ended in great joy, not just because he was given a promised son, but because he was enabled to see through the giving of that son that redemption had dawned, a light had come. You know, how wonderful it would be to be as aware 
as Zechariah was, of all that God was doing in the world and his purposes in all of that for our redemption. How wonderful and good it would be to be able to praise God as completely as Zechariah does. And yet, isn't this the case with us, that often we find that it is often through the stretching times of affliction that we're finally enabled to set aside our pride, to be woken up to the goodness of God, to be awakened to our need of Him, and this is a great reward. So remember this as you walk through difficulties in, in relationships or seasons in life that are more painful than, than pleasant or circumstances are hard and it's hard to see the, the end point of it all. It's hard to see the, the reason for it all. God sovereignly works to show us how much we need him and the salvation that he alone provides through these stretching times of affliction. And, and the more we see our natural tendency to just ignore God, to ignore our need of the gospel, take for granted his grace, the more we can be, we can take comfort from how good he is to give us these opportunities to see him more fully, to see his work more completely, to recognize our need for him, and take ultimately comfort in his goodness to us. So I ask you, in what ways has God used affliction to draw you closer to him? And what does this reveal to you about his gracious purposes in the world? That may seem like a strange way to, to phrase it. The connection I'm making is that it's oftentimes that through the, the struggles of personal affliction that we see not only how God is a God for us, but how God is a God for the whole world. That God is a God who draws people into his redemptive purposes because of his goodness. And we would, we would miss it, just like Zechariah's neighbors miss it, you know. And Zechariah is enabled to see God's gracious purposes in all that is happening because of the sovereign rebuke that God has led him through. So let's take comfort from that. I love the way that, that J.C. Ryle, the old, uh, the old saint, in his, in his usual pithy way of saying things, he says it like this. Sanctified afflictions, says an old divine, are spiritual emotions. The sorrow that humbles us and drives us nearer to God is a blessing and a downright gain. A downright gain. I know, I, to be honest, sometimes I struggle to believe that. It's, it's hard, you know, and, and I don't think that God wants us to have this sort of fake attitude, you know, where we just go into trials and we experience them with a grin on our face and, you know, sort of an upper, a stiff upper lip and as though, you know, oh, it's no big deal after all. That, that's not it at all. But we can take comfort in the fact that God is leading us through these experiences to see his sovereign goodness in the world. Oftentimes we just would just be so blind to it. And, and how wonderful it is when we can finally see that, that God is the God for us, that God is the God for the world, that God is working mercifully to draw people to himself, to expand his kingdom, to grow his family. And, and how grateful we can be that though it is unpleasant and though it is hard, we have a God who sovereignly works in our lives to open our eyes to all that he is doing and, and comforts us in the process. So, turning again to the text, let's see how Luke describes uh, Zechariah's response, his praiseful response of, of God and, and the events that he has revealed. Uh, picking up in verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Pause there for a minute. So Luke proceeds to tell us the content of Zechariah's praise of God. 
Zechariah blesses God because he sees that God has, has visited and redeemed his people. Now, now, this is amazing. Think about it. Nine months before, Zechariah couldn't even believe that his, his barren wife would bear a son. And now he is so convinced of the amazing implications of all that that means that he considers God's redemption of his people as, as good as already accomplished. I mean, that's amazing. The, the, the transformation uh, in Zechariah's heart where he's able to see that God is faithful and trustworthy and God is working a great work in his life. Now, Zechariah's praise is divided into two parts. The, the first part, the part we've just read, uh, consists of his praise of God for all the mighty works that he has done in the life of his people and all that that means for uh, God's redemptive purposes in the life of Israel. And, and the second part of his praise, the part we'll read in just a minute, con- consists of his blessing over his son for the, uh, the way in which he's going to prepare God's people to uh, see that that goodness and that righteousness and that redemption applies to them specifically. You know, he sums up all of God's redemptive purposes in, in his praise of God, the part we just read. It. He sums it all up uh, in, in this one magnificent goal, to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness forever. This is the great design of history. A- and the second part of Zechariah's praise concerns the great obstacle that is overcome by the redemption accomplished by the Messiah, namely, our sin. These are the great issues of life. God is a fearful being to rebellious sinners like us. God is holy. That is, he is separate from all uncleanness and unrighteousness and all perversity and all wicked thoughts. And God is righteous. He is totally committed to all that is good and true. And he never for even one second ceases to be and do what is right and just, and worthy of the highest praise and admiration. Everything he is, is good, and everything that he does is just. So that to know this God, to really know him, to to speak to him like Moses did as a man who speaks to his friend, is to know the highest excellence that can be dreamed of. It is to experience the most profound comfort and security that can keep your soul safe from every danger and alarm. It is to be known as you were made to be known, as an image-bearer of the Most High God, created with a humanity that is very good. And it is to serve God in such a way that more and more you begin to use your strengths and abilities and talents only in ways that bring God glory and, and build others up and create joy in God and everything good. To know this God is better than every promotion and every kudos it's better than every retweet or, or Facebook like or, or any light or transient thing that distracts us from the inestimable worth of knowing our Creator. It is worth every trial and affliction. It is worth first starts and, and faltering steps. It's worth persevering for. It's worth blindness and muteness and a life spent in the wilderness. And it is just that we may know this God that the whole history of redemption is moving towards. Here is the end goal of every Old Testament prophet's message. Here is the summation of the covenants God has made with his people. Here is the true character of God's kingdom finally revealed, in which we may be fellow heirs of his kingdom with him, and called by him not just servants, but sons and daughters. We have only to spend a moment considering the awesome, beyond hope, almost unbelievable glory of this redemption, to see why it is worth the highest praise of God for accomplishing it for his people. 
Now, did Zechariah know that John was going to prepare the way for a Messiah who would, who would suffer and die for his people? Probably not. There are signs here that Zechariah spoke better than he knew. But, but the main thing to note is that Zechariah exults in a God who is bringing about a redemption with the goal that his people may serve him in holiness and righteousness forever. This means that our unholiness and our wickedness must be dealt with. It means that there is something between us and God that can't get along, our sin. And it prevents us from serving him without fear. So salvation is not mainly about political liberation. It's not mainly about feeling better about ourselves. It's not mainly about getting our lives back on track for success in this world. Instead, salvation is mainly about being declared holy and righteous. And on that basis, being able to serve God without fear forever. So the language that Zechariah uses, language that we find throughout the Bible as the story of redemption is progressively revealed, helps us to see how desperate our condition is apart from God's grace and the gospel. We are so enslaved to sin that we can do nothing to save ourselves, and we need God to visit us with his mercy. Sin is so destructive and so horrifying that nothing but God's charge against it will be able to break its power over us. If the goal of God's redemption is to be accomplished, then the great barriers of fear and wickedness must be overcome. And the good news is that they are overcome in the gospel of Jesus. This is the good news of Zechariah's song. The Messiah is coming who will save his people and draw them near to God. So, I think this raises a question for us, and that is, how has God used the means of grace in your life to make you more aware of his goodness? How has he used these means to grow in you a desire to serve and praise him forever? You know, these are the ways in which God makes us aware of his holy purposes in our lives. And these are the ways in which God creates in us a desire for him, a desire to serve him with joy forever and without fear. Consider these two elements of Zechariah's praise. God's mercy to his people on the one hand and the ability to serve him forever on the other. These two things are related. We best see how God is worthy of our praise and worship in the mercy and grace that he extends to us, even though we are sinners. And even though we have rebelled and left to ourselves, we don't want anything to do with God. In our sinfulness, we cannot stand before a holy God, and so we fear any mention of him. And we try our best to drown out any mention of him in the world. But as redeemed people, we do not fear God in this way. Instead of running from him, we run to him to be free of the power and guilt of sin. And in doing this, we show that God is worthy of all of our trust and all of our praise. So Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century Puritan who, probably better than, than most, knew how to get right to the heart of an issue and, and sum up what it means to love God with all of our heart and soul and strength. He sums it up like this. The godly have been made sensible to the fact that creature enjoyments cannot satisfy the soul. Nothing can truly content them but God himself. Offer a saint anything you want, but if you deny him God, he will be miserable. God is the center of his desires, and as long as you keep his soul from its proper center, it will not rest. That is the reality for us as redeemed people, living in God's kingdom, and the tension between the now and not yet. We often feel the, the, the pull of sin and the, the drain of our old nature, and yet we also know that God is God is a God for us, and that God is who we most love and who we most desire. And so we see that most clearly in the ways in which God helps us to see our need for him in the, in the gospel. 
So let's turn again to the text and see how God, or Zechariah rather, how Zechariah blesses his son for the knowledge of this redemption that he's bringing in the world. Picking up in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So this is the second part of Zechariah's praise. And in it, he blesses his son for the work he will do to prepare the way for the Messiah who is coming. Now, when we turn our thoughts in this, uh, and expectations in, in this glorious direction, we see immediately how far our natural inclinations are from the good things of God. We feel the weight of distractions, of our old unbelieving hearts, of the siren call of sin and its deathly lures. We feel our fear and our lusts and our apathy towards the work of God. We see that we have no hope in ourselves of drawing near to God. We know that in our sinfulness, without the covering of Jesus, we could never be found faithful, never be found faithful servants of God to serve him without fear in his happy kingdom. We could never draw near to God without being consumed. And in the midst of these seemingly hopeless realities, here John will come with a message. John, whose name means God will be gracious, will proclaim, make straight the path of the Lord. We who sat in darkness have seen a great light. This is what Zechariah exults in. What is this light? It is the light of the forgiveness of sins. Sin is the great spoiler of life. It shuts out God from the soul and strangles it in darkness. It suffocates hope. It kills joy. It separates us from our Creator and everything we were created to be in Him and everything we were created to know and enjoy in God. In its darkness, it slowly kills us. We languish in its grip in a kind of spiritual daze and grow more and more insensible to goodness and truth, as if they were some kind of foreign language we could barely understand. Sin, moreover, stains us with guilt, and we are ashamed of who we are. And we make ditches and ruts in the path to our soul and build obstacles in its path. And yet, yet, a powerful one has come who shatters our resistance. He shines his pure light into the darkness and calls his people out. He washes their guilt away with his blood. He forgives their sins. He brings us from death to life. He leads us in the way of peace. This is the work of the Messiah that John will herald. So God has not left himself without a witness. The precious gospel of forgiveness has been highlighted in every fitting way. This is the message that God, that, that John rather, will herald. There is forgiveness in the name of Jesus. So now the question remains for us. Will we heed what he says? Will we look where, will we look, will we look where John points? Will we believe? This is a question for all of us. Whether you have been following Jesus for many years or whether you do not now trust him, the life of faith is a life of continued dependence upon the gospel. Remember, the antithesis to faith is not doubt, pride. Pride says, I don't need Jesus. I can manage on my own. But faith says, Lord, help, I need you. Pride says, my believing the right things and doing the right things 
is enough to earn me God's favor. But faith says, I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. So, are you trusting in God alone for redemption? Are you living in a way that demonstrates the light of Christ? How do we answer these questions? How could we be sure that the answer is yes? By believing in the promise. Paul says it like this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Turn to the promise. Turn to it again and again. The race of life is not to the smart or the rich or the powerful or the handsome or the beautiful. It is to those who persevere in humble dependence upon God's grace, upon the redemption that we need to stand before him in holiness and righteousness without fear forever. John Calvin puts it like this. Forgiveness of sins is promised in the covenant, but it is offered through the atonement of Christ. Righteousness is promised, but it is offered through the atonement of Christ. Life is promised, but it must be sought only in the death and resurrection of Christ. So, what do we see in Luke 1, 57-80? What does Luke 1 teach us? At least three things. One, God uses affliction to show us our need of his grace. And this is a, a humble thing. It's a humbling thing. It's a gracious thing, though, too. God wakes us up from our indifference to his redemptive purposes in the world. He wakes us up from our prideful apathy, our assumptions that we can get along in our own strength. And he usually does it through affliction. And though this is not a comfortable thing, we can take comfort in the fact that God is using all these things to draw us nearer to him, to grow in us a desire to serve him without fear forever. And how wonderful it will be to finally get to his happy kingdom and recognize all the ways in which he worked for us in ways we didn't even see in the moment to make us more and more like Jesus, so that we can enjoy him forever. Two, Luke teaches us that the goal of our redemption is that we may serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness forever. That's the goal of history. The goal of redemption is that we may serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness forever. You know, we could, if we got to heaven and we could just be just as happy as God wasn't there, then we show in our hearts that we don't desire God as we ought to do. And so we need to lean in on the gospel and recognize in it that God is graciously working to draw us nearer to himself so that we can enjoy him for who he is and how he redeems us for life with him forever. And finally, Luke shows us that redemption is found only in the name of Jesus. Only in the name of Jesus. Turn to the promise and find in Jesus life for your soul. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the ways in which you have revealed your gracious purposes in the world to us. Through your word and, and through stretching times, we have come more and more to be awakened from our apathy and our indifference and our just plain old forgetfulness. And we've seen how you have drawn your people to yourself, how you've worked through history to reveal your goodness and grace. May it land on our hearts with this special effect this Christmas season. May we recognize in all of our lives how much we need you. And may we turn to you alone for the redemption that we so much need to enjoy you forever. And may it work in our hearts so that we grow more and more in love with you and more and more desire to see you, to serve you in holiness and righteousness forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.